Welcome to the Drive Able podcast, where we discuss all things about driving and safer community transport for people with disabilities and medical conditions. If you haven't done so yet, make sure you subscribe to our channel and follow us on the socials. Drive Able podcast is all you have to search for. We have a mountain of episodes now and interviews, so if you enjoy this one, make sure you go back and listen to some of our older episodes. This is an episode that's a little bit different. We're not interviewing a driver, but we're interviewing somebody that has and will help drivers with disabilities in the future. In this episode, we speak to Natalie Wade. Natalie Wade is a prominent disabilities rights lawyer and advocate as the founder and principal lawyer of Equity Lawyers. I first met Natalie many years ago when she had a goal to drive. This was well before the NDIS days and I'm keen to discuss if driving is still on her radar and for you, from a legal viewpoint, how she can assist drivers with disabilities. Ali is about to join us and we're about to say g'day to Nat, so stick around and this should be a great interview. Driving is something many take for granted, but when someone has altered ability, then driving or getting out and about in your own car can be challenging. Driving with a disability doesn't mean you have to drive an old clapped out car with farm-like machinery, and relying on a wheelchair doesn't mean waiting for hours and then being in the back of a maxi access cab getting car sick. The Drivable podcast is designed to introduce and explore driving aids for people with disabilities, vehicle modifications, the NDIS, research, medical guidelines, driving techniques, and much, much more. The Drivable podcast is to help you be informed and be in control of your own independence so you can experience freedom through driving safely and reliably. I'm Ali and with me is Brad and together we have over 30 years of experience in disability and driving. Enough of the intros, let's get into it. Okay, in this episode we are talking with Natalie Wade. Natalie, thanks very much for joining us. Let's kick this off by allowing you to introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about you, who you are, a bit of a life story in a nutshell uh, with a few sentences and then maybe discuss your disability too. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me, Brad. This is an absolute pleasure uh, to be on your very progressive and innovative podcast today. So uh, my name's Natalie and by way of uh, formal title, I am the founder and principal lawyer of Equality Lawyers. So we're a law firm that uh, represents people with disabilities and their families in everyday legal issues. So disability discrimination, NDIS reviews and appeals, guardianship and administration, drafting, uh, boring rules and estates, um, all the everyday bits and pieces that impact the disability community um we provide those services so i was born with a physical disability uh in the very late 80s so that sort of brought me and my family at a point where uh deinstitutionalization where people with disabilities were uh removed from their families and placed into large institutionalized care was coming to an end And so my parents were given the option uh, to either take me home with them 
uh, or send me to what was then known as the Crippled Children's Association at Regency Park. Um, fortunately for me, and I would say probably them, uh, they chose to take me home um, and see what happened. I, when I was born, I had a pretty dim prognosis, I think it would be fair to say. The prediction in a medical way was that I would uh, be uh, bed bound and unable to speak uh, or independently do much at all for myself. A lot of that evidently turned out to not be true, though uh, perhaps a little bit that was true was that I, I have very high care uh, personal needs. So I don't do a lot for myself in terms of, um, uh, I think in the words of the NGIS, uh, everyday daily living tasks. So having a shower, going to the toilet, uh, preparing dinner, uh, getting in and out of bed, I have uh, uh, paid support to come in and do that. And so to get around um, my house, community, or anywhere that's not my bed, um, I use an electric wheelchair. And so I am um, usually seen zipping around, usually the office, very boringly, um, or shopping, not so boring, um, or um, at the local pub or cafe. Although I feel like that's getting uh, less and less interesting the more I delve into my 30s. So anyway, <laughs> I, um, I'm sorry, look, that's a little bit about me. I guess in medical terms, I was born with an undiagnosed congenital muscular myopathy, which just means that I was born with very weak muscles. Um, but it, it has a similar uh, physical disability um, to what you may see in a um, person who's a quadriplegic or that might have muscular dystrophy. So it's a little bit like that. So I can't really move my arms too much um, and I can't stand up at all. Yeah. Oh, thank you very much for well, yeah sharing that with us. Um, what, were, what was it like going through school and those early days? Um, you were at home and, and I'm assuming that uh, being at home with family, did you go to a mainstream school? Yeah, I did. So I grew up um, in the far north of South Australia in, uh, I think it's a relatively large regional town now um, called Port Augusta, which is up at the tip of the Iron Knob. Um, and so I went to the local Catholic school there uh, I was the only person who was in a wheelchair. Um, I, I used to say that I was the only person with a disability, but looking back on it, knowing what I know now, I don't really know that because obviously people have invisible disabilities and people have um, all sorts of disabilities that don't look like wheelchairs. Um, so I was certainly the only one in a chair. Uh, when I was um, 15, my parents had a sea change and moved from uh, the burning hot desert of Portiasa to the freezing cold Adelaide Hills of Mount Barker. And um, I then was enrolled in the local Catholic school in Mount Barker um, to complete my high school education. Again, I was the only person in a wheelchair. Um, again, not so sure if it would be correct to say I was the only one with a discipline. 
Um, but I very much had an immersion into mainstream schooling. Um, that, I guess, it was great from an educational perspective. I was able to access the curriculum on an equal basis with others. And certainly uh, the more of my life that I spend being a disability rights lawyer, the more acutely aware I am of what I, um, a unique and privileged position that is, um, to be able to access the everyday schoolwork um, as everyone else did. So that, that was good and that's probably um, what allowed me to get in, into law school ultimately. But I, I, it, was, it was a bit of a disadvantage in that I had no exposure to the disability community as a child or adolescent. So I didn't really come into the disability community, both in terms of um, necessarily identifying with any sort of element of pride uh, in being disabled um, or knowing other people with disabilities until I was a young adult. Um, so I, um, yeah, I had not a lot of exposure, which looking back now, I think what a shame that I wasn't able to um, uh, learn more and understand better about disability culture and pride and what it meant. I probably made up for that in droves uh, since uh, becoming a part of the disability community, um, but a shame not to do it as a child. And um, yeah, but otherwise, it was it was a pretty cool experience. It's such an interesting concept, becoming part of the disability community. Uh, using your words, I that's that's intriguing um, for you. You know, to hear that coming from you. I mean, it's there's what you see and there's all the stigmas attached to what you see. And I'm sure you deal with that every day. How, how, how was it perceived when you went to law school? So I think almost um, mimicking my experience at um, primary and high school, I again was the only person in a wheelchair at law school. Um, and so again, I, developed a friendship network of people that were not disabled. So law school was certainly not going to be my immersion into the disability community at all. Um, however, it was one of the first times where I, as a then 18 year old, was responsible for my own advocacy and my own inclusion in education. So probably like most young people, up until that point, mum and dad had really done the hard jobs. So I, I presume there were some barriers to my education that I was completely unaware of. So my task pre-18 was to learn, be a good friend and try not to annoy my sister too much. Um, and then when I uh, went to law school, it was really the first time that I didn't have the safety net of mum and dad to uh, advocate for my rights in education or, or anywhere. Um, and so I very quickly um, took to that skill set of letting the university know where I needed uh, adjustments or where I needed some help to be able to access my degree. Um, but 
in tandem to that, I had started to become uh, more connected to the disability community. I'd started to meet some other young adults with uh, disabilities who also had physical and other disabilities. Um, and I had started to join committees. And I think that anyone who knows me or if you do a quick Google of me, I really need to start with the committees, all of the committees. Um, has been a feature of my um, time as a disability advocate over the last more than a decade now. And so, um, yeah, that also really helped me to develop a sense of connection to community and culture. Were you, when you were, um, I guess, growing up, when you were talking about <clears throat> what you said, uh, when you were, um, your words about immerse, immersion into the disability community, did you, before you, I guess, were more immersed into that community, did you, were you seeking that community actively or like, did you feel like something was, I guess, missing in those like days where you were the only one or did you just feel like you were part of another community or like, what, what was the feelings? Were you seeking so, something? Yeah, so that's a really great question. So when I um, was growing up, I guess for context for those listening, it was the the 90s and what we call the noughties, like the 2000s, right? And so at that time, we as a, as a country, Australia was still very medicalised in their approach to disability. And there was a heavy sense, uh, though now there's still remnants of this, uh, of shame and guilt around disability. And so I thought uh, in my child mind. Well, this is really great. There's no one else like what the version of disability looks like, and that is normal for whatever that looks like. And so I um, as a youngster, was quite happy with this idea that I would be the only person who was obviously disabled um, because then I would not have to combat um, any uh, other perceptions that were forecast on the other person who might have a disability so I could create the narrative, really, about what disability was. And it was a narrative that was really uh, embedded in some... Uh, internalised ableism on my part, if I look back on it, and, and I think, well, I didn't want um, people to associate me with, with being disabled or having a disability because in the time when I grew up, that was a bad thing and, and it wasn't a good thing. To be disabled, disability was something to be cured um, and, and something that, that would be the worst possible outcome um, and so I was quite keen to be the sole ranger that was in charge of um, uh, that narrative and that perception of, of me as a disabled person. I think, though, uh, when I was a young adult, so about 17, 18 years old, I think very naturally you start to think, you know, who am I? What do I do in life? Where is my place in life? Um, and because disability is such an entrenched part of identity, I think it's very hard to navigate those questions 
as a young adult of who am I and where do I fit in the world without really tackling um, what your disability means. And it's really hard to navigate what your disability means without connection to community and culture. Um, so it all came, I think, at a time when I was ready for it, that I really wanted to see and connect with other people with disabilities and learn about how they lived and were living. And I think really importantly, it wasn't for me just about peer connection, that is other young adults who also had physical disabilities, um, but it was, I learned so much and a real sense of pride from people who were older than me to hear about them having houses and families and children and careers was really something that I did need to hear at that age and really helped me develop a keen sense of pride uh, and, and really, um, I guess, ability within the disability community. It's actually interesting to me because, um, well, I guess one of the reasons uh, big reasons that we have this podcast is to highlight, I guess, um, the the culture of to say the disability culture, if you'd like, um, and, and people and being able to be successful and so on. Um, it's it's interesting what you said about the past as well, because a lot of people that we have um, interviewed um, that I guess have been very quite successful. Um, a common theme is people that have been in like regional areas or, or smaller towns um, and they were like the only disabled person. Um, and it's almost, it, it's weird to say, but it's almost like um, because they were the only disabled person, they maybe couldn't be disabled like or, or couldn't proudly be disabled, if that makes sense. I don't know if I'm saying it the right way, yeah. but it's like you had to kind of, so all, like, it's like what you were saying, the shame of being disabled, you sort of tried to normalise in every single way, if that makes sense. Um, so it's interesting because I guess what you were saying and what I, what Brad highlighted was the concept of the disability community and, and all of that being like highlighted as a community on its own. I think it's um, with, I think it's, it's time for it to get a lot more noise and traction, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. It's incredibly important, Ali. I think it's incredibly important, if nothing else, for uh, children and young people with disabilities that are growing up right now in a community and a society that adopts a social model of disability. So one where barriers create the disability, not the focus being on the medical condition. And I think it's really important that if that is how we're starting to create our society expectations through laws and public policy and community practices, then we need to make sure that those children and young people have, have connection into community um, so that they can channel that in the right way and they can understand it better. How, how did you become or want to become a lawyer? That's uh, What was the story behind that? Well, uh, initially, it was just that I got the grades, came down in the 12th with, with a good, uh, what was then a TER, but an ATAR, I guess. I think I decided sometime in the 12th that I thought it would be a good idea to go to law school. Uh, but it was, it was purely um, academic, I think, at that point. Uh, it wasn't until about 
starting in my first year that I thought it would be really fantastic to uh, be involved in sort of human rights law and the practice of that. Um, my degree, I did, I did a double degree at, at the University of Adelaide uh, in commerce, so like a business degree, um, which I, I never really used until I owned a law firm. And even then, I think it's a bit of a stretch. But anyway, I, um, and I thought oh, for a good while, I thought I would be like a corporate lawyer. <laughs> um, anyway, that, uh, thank gosh, never happened. Um, but I, towards the end of my degree, so I finished my fifth year of law school, I was age 22, 23, 23, I was 23. Um, and I had really at that point, so I'd been doing disability advocacy for about five years throughout the whole of law school, uh, through, you know, structures of communities and boards, um, but also individual advocacy for myself. Um, and I had really developed a keen sense of pride um, in my disability by the end of final year. Um, and so I, at about that point, thought I would love to be a disability rights lawyer. That was not really a thing uh, then. Um, so I went off and got a job in government as a lawyer, like all good 23 year olds should. Um, but I, um, yeah, there's a, a strong social justice theme throughout, but I certainly was not um, one of these fantastically impressive young people that we see come through in South Australia these days when they do their year 11 research projects on um, human rights and they have cured half of Africa by the time they get midway through year 12 and, and all of that, I think I was nowhere near that heroic. I thought law school was great uh, if I get in and I did get in and, and then, um, you know, with a bit of help from student politics and um, disability advocacy along the way, uh, here we are. Yeah, yeah. I think also back when back in the days when we went to uni, um, you didn't have as much access to information like the internet. You kind of just went to the books. And, and, and so you only kind of had a limited amount of information you could get and reproduce. So, yeah, <laughs> exactly right. Exactly. I definitely was not, you know, connecting to people in Rwanda via TikTok or whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> yeah. That's really, really uh, fascinating. And I guess... Um, um, segueing a little bit to NDIS, um, I'm guessing you being a lawyer, you're probably working a fair bit in that space. And um, I'm interested to hear a little bit about your opinion around that. Um, because I think the, the idea of the concept behind NDIS is to have a future where it's socially included and, um, uh, and, and basically, I guess, this, this ideology that everyone is holding everybody up together and connected and so on. Um, and, and what do you think about that and how it's going? It's a pretty good question. I, I think um, the, it, it cannot be said enough that the NDIS is one of the biggest public policy and legal reforms of our time. Absolutely. And I think for me, when I, when I read that and when I say that, I 
I really mean that it was the point in Australian history where uh, people through, through government uh, said that we recognise people with disabilities live in community and we recognise that they need support and funding to live ordinary lives. It was one of the real watershed moments for me where um, the social model of disability, and I feel like we need to put in the show notes about what the social model is, um, but the, the social model of disability really came to be in the forefront of everyone's mind. So I think for a while before the NDIS, generally community were, were recognising that people with disabilities lived in community as opposed to living in institutions and that they needed support and funding to be able to do that. I think the broader Australian community were horrified and disgusted to know that there were people with disabilities and their families that were going for a week without a shower and were being left in their wheelchairs and you know all of that stuff is really horrifying and completely repulsive uh, to the broader Australian community. And so I think that the work of the then Gillard government really captured the essence of Australia's thoughts on how disability um, should be included in community and how it should be provided for. So at, at its heart, it is one of the most incredible reforms of our time and one of the, the key points in the disability rights movement in Australia that actively advanced our rights uh, as disabled people to move from. Having said all of that. Yeah, I can feel um, the butt. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it is evidently a reform that had an incredible amount of work to do and has failed a lot of people. And whether that is um, because it has failed due to TV issues or because it's a relatively new and complex system, it needs to be complex for the amount of uh, response to individual and unique circumstances that it needs to do. I think whatever the case, whatever the reason, I think it's fundamental to acknowledge at this point that it has failed a whole bunch of people and that it has left um, many families and people with disabilities with either um, less support and funding than they would have had before, uh, that is under a state-funded system, uh, or it has blocked their access to disability support where under previous state systems that would have been picked up in one way or another. I think for some people with disabilities, it has left them with a sense of distrust, that they don't trust that the system that was created for them is performing in a way that it adequately protects them. And that is a real concern, I think when um, people 
in the general population start to feel that way about a government system. So I think, and of course, there are people that have, um, you know, received great support and funding, early intervention for little kids, things like that. Um, but I think there is still incredible hope within the disability community that this will come into its own. And we're seeing more and more in the conversations uh, most recently about the proposed reforms that really the fate of the, the NDIS will rest on government's willingness and ability to consult with and have lived experience voices, so people with disabilities, at the forefront of the decision making. So there needs to be some point, and hopefully we're just edging towards that point right now, where government recognise that it's actually wildly inappropriate for able-bodied people to create laws and public policy for disabled people. And in fact, disabled people should be in those leadership positions, providing that advice to the minister, providing the public policy uh, expertise. So going well beyond a community forum, going well beyond a submission on a piece of paper, but actually adopting a model where people with disabilities are in entrenched positions that inform law and public policy. And that's probably the only way that we're going to fix the issues that we're having at the moment. Yeah, uh, I totally agree. I 100% agree. It's um, from an outsider as well, uh, but as an occupational therapist um, who, yeah, is there to assist people to overcome um functional issues yeah. I, I totally agree i totally agree and from my point of view it would be great not just to have it at the ndis level but you know this is a driving podcast we'll talk about driving as well uh but at the motor um the government areas with the department of transport here in south australia rms in new south wales and, and vic roads and so forth as well um entrenched in that system as well so there's an understanding of the license requirements for somebody with a disability as well and, and the impact that it has. Absolutely, absolutely. Actually, interesting. I mean, it's um, just a brief side note, but um, somebody within the um, government, vehicle section of the government that I deal with, I'm not gonna say which, which part, but anyway, um, they ended up um, becoming ill and then becoming disabled um, and it was quite interesting because I've worked with them before they were disabled and after they were disabled and their approach to vehicle standards and the disability community completely changed. Um, yeah. They weren't very compassionate at all beforehand. And then all of a sudden they had to live those, um, I guess, steps and everything changed. So it was really, really interesting uh, to see that, I guess, in front of your eyes. Um, one, I wanted to ask a couple of things from the stuff that you were saying before. Um, from your experience working in these kind of areas, is there a, is there like a cohort of people or a common theme or a certain type of disability that people are like falling behind or this NDIS is kind of missed out on or is it 
is there like a general kind of theme um, that you're seeing? Uh, yeah, I'm just interested to see that, uh, flag that for people. So I guess it's important to recognise that the NDIS only really pertains to one portion of the disability community, that is those that are that, that are eligible and require disability support funding, but also um, uh, what, what that looks like for everyone will be, will be slightly different. I, uh, you know, and, and I guess as well, it's important to recognise and acknowledge that, you know, common legal issues that, that I see in quality lawyers or that I, I hear about as a disability advocate would interface with the NDIS, but they're not necessarily squarely within the remit of the NDIS. So, for example, uh, education is a really common issue that we see, um, I, I see both as a lawyer, uh, but also I hear around um, is, is pretty fundamentally not working well for people. Um, and so that has some really interesting uh, touch points with the NDIS, but it's not really the problem of the NDIS. Um, one of the, I guess, the, the key things that we do see are uh, squarely within the operation of the National Disability Insurance Scheme is uh, probably two things. One is access to the scheme. So actually getting onto the scheme when a person um, acquires their disability, so they have an accident or an injury, um, but also if they perhaps you know, had a latent you know, congenital disability that sort of came later in life or whatever. Um, so access to the scheme can be quite precarious um, and really challenging for people. Um, but I think surpassing any and all issues are the most common issue that we do hear of, or I hear of as a lawyer um, and as an advocate, is the planning process. So the way in which the planning process operates um, and the way in which people with disabilities are felt uh, or left to feel that they need to justify uh, their disability and what it means and what it looks like and how it is, um, is really problematic. And it is something that uh, I observe to very much disenfranchise people with disabilities and to isolate them even more, but it also complicates their life in a way that is so inconvenient and so unhelpful that um, it, it is in desperate need of reform. Absolutely. One, yeah. one more thing I'll ask. Um, how, so you were saying that we need more people in positions of influence and power. Um, what, what is your idea of how we can get that, more of that? Yeah, sure. So um, in, in my view, I think there's a lot to be learned from um, other human rights movements throughout Australia. So the women's rights movement, the Aboriginal rights movement, um, even um, the LGBTIQA plus movement um, and how they have been able to elevate themselves uh, into places where they need to influence uh, laws and public policy that pertain to men. Uh, so there's a couple of different things that I think from a structural perspective, 
that governments can do. They can be things like uh, affirmative action. I think we're at a point where we do require um, affirmative action through quotas uh, for people with disabilities to represent a certain number of leadership and executive roles within government. I think that, that absolutely has to happen. There's a little bit of that happening and has been for some time uh, with respect to positions within the public service. Um, so there has been quotas and KPIs uh, espoused by the public service for, for some time for people with disabilities, but often those positions are at a graduate or entry level um, uh, roles, whereas what I'm talking about is CEOs, senior executives, um, ministerial advisors, so the, the very top end of the public sector and Commonwealth and state level. I think we also need to see from a structural perspective uh, the creation or for some states and territories, the recreation of disability-led advisory councils. So in South Australia, we used to have many moons ago a ministerial disability advisory council. Um, other states and territories have similar bodies. I think that both the Commonwealth and individual states and territories must have those bodies that are made up of only people or a, a heavy majority uh, of people with disabilities and that their role is to provide advice and strategic direction to the minister, to the CEO, um, and to properly inform the development of public policy. So I guess really what I want to see, and I think what uh, government and community need, is to create structures that allow people with lived experience to properly advise on and develop law and public policy that impacts people with disabilities. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I just want to go back um, for the the people that are listening to this with um, driving issues. You were saying that um, some of the three or the three main points that I wrote down was education, access to the NDIS, but then also the planning process. One of the big issues that we see is that planning process and um, gaining access to the funding that they they need for driving aids. Uh, it's come up multiple times in this podcast. Um, Dee's a, a prime example of that. If you want to go back and listen to Dee's story about trying to get uh, access to the funding that they needed for her daughter to get out and about into the community. Um, do you, is there any tips that you can provide on this podcast without getting, you know, in trouble or anything else like that? But is there any tips that we could learn from you in regards to gaining the access or, or standing up for yourself, advocating for yourself, advocating for your daughter or your son um, that you've learnt along the way that people could benefit from? Yeah, sure. And, and Brad, don't let me leave you today without telling you my own little story about driving, but we'll come to that in a, in a minute. I think my, my sort of pro tips for people that want... Uh, you know, in the speak of, of the NDIA car modifications, which is really what they are, um, 
uh, are probably as follows. One, get a really good OT on board. I think an OT that is able to do the functional capacity assessment in a detailed and uh, proper way is fundamental, but also has the connections into the card modification space is really, really important. And I think in Adelaide, it's a little unique to the Eastern States in that we have, uh, and, and Brad will be able to talk about this much more than me, you know, we have a sort of very small sector of suppliers, uh, you know, whereas if I lived in Sydney, uh, I would have many, many uh, car modification suppliers that I would be able to pick from. And as a disabled person, I had to do some Googling and do some running around and be able to ne negotiate that. I think um, particularly for South Australian listeners, but true for everyone, I, I would say, uh, having an OT that has the connection to um, the sector uh, is really important to make sure that not only are you able to get proper quotes and uh, proper assessment of what you need, but also to find out the latest. Like hard modifications is one of those things that seems to be evolving all of the time. Um, and certainly just in my lifetime and car modifications looks very different to when I was a child and my parents had a Chrysler Voyager van and they put ramps in the back of the van and I just drive up the ramps. Which is um, very different to what it is all like today. So I think having an OT that really specialises in this is really important. Um, the other thing that so I do, I do three tips, but that's one tip. My second tip is to go to the planning meeting very well prepared and having a good understanding of how the NDIS plan needs to receive that information. So there is some really great information online through the NDIS website um, and some advocacy organisations put up really great information about planning for your planning meeting. Um, I think having that to hand is really important. So receiving the reports and then applying those reports to that information to plan for the planning meeting is really important. The third tip uh, is that during the planning meeting, if you are requested to give further evidence, that is further reports or assessments, or if the planner says something to the effect of, no, you cannot have car modifications or whatever, um, ask for them to put that in writing and seek an urgent review um, and get help with the review. Get help through your local disability advocate uh, or give us a call at Equality Lawyers and we can help you out as well. So um, just be really mindful. Sometimes we do see people that they ask for things in their planning meeting and the planner gives some off-the-cuff advice um, which for something as innovative as car modifications can be a little bit more dangerous than everyone realises in the moment. Um, 
And so just to be really wary of that. And if you do have any concerns, that is usually that you are not able to receive your car modifications to follow that up ASAP. Yeah, oh, I'm madly writing. Um, and we yeah, very, very uh, good tips. Yeah, um, fantastic. Uh, I agree with all three of those. <laughs> I've got nothing else to add um, to any of those. So please go back and listen to those three tips. And that's um, a massive highlight of this uh, podcast episode. So thank you very much for, for sharing that. Um, you, you said uh, you wanted to tell us about your NDIS story um, with driving mods. Well, I feel like I owe you this, Brad. So oh, yeah. I, think for, I think for listeners and for, even for Ali, we might need to actually disclose how long you and I have been talking about driving. I Before NDIS. Oh, most certainly would be. Do you know, I would even, I don't know that we've quite hit a decade, but we'd be going close, I reckon. So... I first, this is for the benefit of the listeners in Ali, not necessarily for Brad. So I came into contact with Brad many, many moons ago. I was still at law school, wasn't I? Open my yes, you were. Yep. And I um, absolutely had the intention of driving. I recall the dream to me. So in, oh, golly, 2013, 2014, so at that point, we are pre-NDIS in South Australia for adults. The, um, the trial for children had just not long started or was about to get started. So everyone in the disability sector and community knew that NDIS was on the way. We all knew that it was definitely going to be um, something that was happening. But at that point, I was still receiving state-funded disability support. Um, Anyway, uh, when I took to driving, Brad, we sent me over to Sydney to do, so I don't know if it still looks like this when you do it with current plans, but I went over to Sydney in April 2014, I remember that much, and drove a car for the first time in my life, which was absolutely incredible. I remember saying to my mum at the time, who did not come to Sydney, who I don't know was fully on board with this idea of me driving a car, that um, it was so unbelievable that I was driving a car. It was as unbelievable that I would ever walk as I would drive a car. Like, it was the most sensational feeling. I drove around the back streets of a suburb in Sydney uh, with... Uh, an OT that was sort of um, uh, all in the know of, of those things over in Sydney. And it was great. The price tag of the quotes and what I needed, car not included, was $218,000. And I went back to the state government uh, with, who were funding all of my disability supports and we had a funding model then of individualised funding and I had a great relationship with the individualised funding team and I ripped back to Adelaide and said, oh my gosh, guys, this is great. I just did it. This is a thing we're doing. 
Uh, here's the quote. Let me know when the funding is there. <laughs> and, um, I, I was appropriately cautioned by every expert involved that really these modifications in their time were only really able to be made available to people with spinal cord injuries because they received the funding for the modifications through their court settlements. So where a person is injured, they um, go through this lengthy court litigation uh, with insurers and it's all very boring. I, I don't even do that sort of law. I'm not even really sure what goes on there. And anyway, the, the outcome of all of that is that the person who now has a lifelong disability has a certain amount of compensation given to them to be able to have a life that they would have had but for their disability, right? Mm -hmm. So the first year law students that are currently studying negligence, this would all be familiar language to them. The but for you had the accident, you would have X, Y, and Z. And so uh, that's how the modifications typically were funded. Um, and there was not a great demand. So the cost for the foreseeable future was always going to be quite high. Um, I said, oh, no, no, no worries, no worries. I'm very persuasive and this is going to be absolutely fine. I wouldn't worry. Um, anyway. I I still don't drive. I um I and I have not driven since April 2014. I understand that Brad has alerted me many times to when there has been a vehicle available in Adelaide for me to drive. Um and it's I coming, have it's coming back by the way. Oh, <laughs> another another email from me to ignore could I? Um and uh at any rate, so I I said to many experts, Brad included, involved in time. Well, in the absence of the state government funding, I'll hold off the NGIS for rollout and I'll go through the NGIS situation. And to be fair to me, in 2018, when I transitioned over to the Commonwealth system, I did put it in my first plan. So it was still sort of on the periphery of my mind. Um, I... Uh, did and, and the time had elapsed, so I needed to do some updates of the OT stuff. By 2018, Brad can tell you more about this, listeners. Um, there were so many more OTs on the market. There were so many more like things to navigate. So when I did it in 2014, it was a phone call to Brad Williams, a phone call to Ledge Braziers. And that was it. They were your options, right? That's all that was really in the SA market. Anyway, four years later, it had become increasingly complex. Um, it was a little difficult to tell who, as it is a very like client-based perspective, um, it was a little difficult to tell who was going to give me that expert report and assessment and input that I spoke about in my pro tips earlier. It, it was, um, and, and I was brand new to the NGIS, right? So like, I wasn't really clear on um, how much assessments were too much or what I needed to give them. And, and I think some of that um, 
lack of clarity is still there for participants. I'm still a little unsure if I, I do stuff. Can I like, speak from an OT point of view? Oh yeah. Uh, we're on we're in exactly the same journey as you. So everything yeah. that you've said, we were in the same boat through this through this journey, and we're still unsure of exactly exactly what's required because it comes you get different feedback for every report that you write and that's the thing i think and that's where you know like that that thing we were talking about earlier of, of getting the right experts and the right assessments done is so fundamental when you're trying to do something as complex and innovative as driving so for people that can't move their hands properly um it's a pretty big deal to put them on the road it's you know like um yeah like i i have um because i'm really floppy right so i have huge head control issues so here i am sitting out talking to you right now my head's completely stable you know if a big gust of wind came through this room i'm sitting my head would just flop back so that's not what you want when you drive your vehicle. And so there's all of these complexities to the idea of me driving. And, and that is a, 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 an experience shared by many people with neuromuscular conditions and spinal cord injuries and, and whatever. So it's not as simple as just get me in the car and let me turn on the ignition, right? There's a whole lot of really hardcore OT stuff that goes into, you know, keeping Nat's head up, keeping Nat's hand stable, keep, you know, what if Nat gets hit by another car, what we, you know, like all of this stuff that, you know, obviously Brad deals with day to day out. But that's, that's the sort of people that you really need as a client is you need people to deal with this day in, day out, right? It's like me being a disability rights lawyer, like people come to us, they should come to us, because all we ever do is disability rights. Like we don't do general legal work plus disability, you know, like all we ever do is that. Same for, Brad, I assume all you do now is driving. All Ali does is, uh, is vehicle modifications yeah. as well. So, and the supply so, of it, yeah. Exactly. And it's like, so it's such a like discrete area. So, you know, I would not, well, I don't know, maybe I would like to test Brad's general knowledge OT, but I, I would not necessarily go to Brad and say, hi, I need a new shower chair, can you help me with that, right? But it's a sort of really in-depth thing, whereas you can probably Google up, you know, OTs Adelaide and go to whoever that usually does shower chairs and they will say, oh, yeah, I can do, I can do some driving. Some driving's probably okay. And look, for some people that just need to get in the car or whatever, that maybe that is okay. But for people like me that have really complex driving modification needs, you, you really do need that expertise. So anyway, so uh, 2018, I probably stumbled around a little bit. And then to be honest, life just got busy. I was telling Brad recently that I feel like I just got a little old, I got married, I moved to house, I got a bit boring. And so driving sort of fell off the radar. Um, you know, me and my husband live very close to Adelaide CBD. And so public transport for us is very easy. Um, Adelaide's a very flat city. 
So, you know, we don't have some of the um, geographical issues that Sydney or Melbourne have. Um, so anyway, it, life has just sort of turned out such that I, I did not end up pursuing it. But I must say that it was absolutely apparent to me when I did put it as a goal in my NDIS plan that I would drive and, and I started to redo the assessments again, that it was going to be a very steep hill, that it was going to be a significant ask and it was going to be something that the NDIA were going to absolutely want to know the most finest of details, which me as the participant, notwithstanding the fact that, you know, what I do for a job or whatever, was going to be really hard for me to anticipate what they needed. Um, and they weren't really forthcoming with that information. Mm. Um, so, you know, all of those things combined uh, meant that I just honestly didn't get around to it. But I, I think it's a shame that I, I think that um, whilst that is the best decision for me right now, um, it does make me think, Brad, about the young people, you know, the people that are age 16 to mm -hmm. 25, that are in that, you know, pea plater, everyone drives to Port Elliot on Saturday, everyone, you know, I don't know, whatever the young people do. They do all these things that... Um, but we, you know, we need to work out a way, you know, that young people with disabilities are actually able to navigate driving modifications because it's certainly my view that there's actually very little reason why a person can't drive. So there seems to be this huge understanding that, you know, you have to be you know, very able-bodied in a traditional sense and you can't you know, have anything slightly going on for you to drive. But in fact, the technology and the modifications that are available make that completely untrue. Is that the case, Brad? Yeah, for a, for a physical disability, nowadays, there's not much that really should stand in your way mm -hmm. other than funding. The, yeah. techn the technology now is amazing. Ali, you'd probably agree with yeah. that comment as well? Yeah, yeah, it's getting more and more. I mean, yeah, every year. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I, mean, I just, I, 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 um, even like just the standard cars, like I just bought a um, new car and it's nothing special, it's just a Subaru Outback. Yeah. And um, I drove it, it um, for a uh, inspection last week. I drove it 150 kilometers there and back uh, to a regional area for an inspection. And 75% um, of it, my hands were not on the steering wheel. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah, it's unreal. It, it, it was semi-autonomous. It basically drove itself most of the way. I just put it on the freeway. It's got cameras. It's got sensors. Steered. It did everything. It was kind of a bit weird, but you know, I got used to it. But yeah, I think the autonomous driving has um, it's going to have a massive impact on the disability sector. I, I think it's you know uh, I won't be doing driving assessments. I'll be doing access assessments uh, yeah, to be yeah. able to access you know, yeah. the right car for the person and I mean, how do I actually get into the car? Yeah, Probably still another decade away to be fully like that. But, but the point is, is that um, the technology is 
just rapidly evolving at the moment. So, um, yeah, so yeah, you're, you're going to see a huge difference in a decade or so. So, and I'll just just point out to to listeners if you want to hear a bit more about uh, the story that Nat's talking about with the high end vehicle, you can go and listen to Nick Tiago's story, and you can also listen to Taisha's story as well, where uh, different disabilities, uh, different needs, but that's that high-end vehicle trials that we unpack a little bit more in those in those podcasts. Yeah. So yeah. it sounds like we should uh, start wrapping it up. Yeah, uh, absolutely. It's Nat. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, look, we we can't let you get away without asking this question. We know that you you don't drive, but we ask this question even to the people that don't drive. Um, and I, I've primed you for it so you could have a bit of a think. Um, so what we ask people are cars, especially in Australia, are more than getting from A to B. What's something that you've done in a car or in transport um, that is a bit unusual or unique that nobody else knows about? That nobody else knows about. Well, not nobody, but that we don't know about. <laughs> okay. So none of the people that I don't even know if you're listening. All right. So when so one of the um so when I couldn't get funding right for a self-drive vehicle, I um uh, compromised and got a passenger vehicle. And in the passenger vehicle, I for whatever reason thought that it would be really nifty to um have this electronic cable that would come up over my light um and so i could um work that's right i thought that i would work in the car i did not work in the car that is absolutely not what happened um but it did i don't know if this is weird enough but it became a great space where i could eat most of the junk food. I wish it was going to be something more fibrous. Um, most of the junk food whilst going on road trips. That was really cool. I think that's a great thing to do in cars. <laughs> Eating junk food on road trips. I think that's one of like the the hallmarks of life, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I, when I travel uh, for for work, you know, up to Port Augusta and down to Port Lincoln and so forth, the wrappers uh, in the car at the end of the journey before yeah. I see my first client, I've got to clear it out. That's for sure. Yeah, it's a, the only the only problem is I did that. I drove for a job for ten years, and then I ended up becoming about forty kilos overweight from all of that stuff. So, uh, so it was a, it was a, it was a big big problem that I had to undo. So, uh, so yeah. There you go. There you go. But yeah, it's good. Thank you very much for that, Natalie. Yeah, no, Nat, thanks very much for joining us on this episode. A, a massive thank you to you um, and sharing your your journey, your NDIS journey, uh, and how you assist people with uh, disabilities in your role there at Equity Lawyers. Um, if people want to get in contact with you, what's the best way that they can do that? Yeah, so they can head over to our website. So that's equalitylawyers.com.au. Um, where there's a red form or they can book an appointment with us. Um, but if all those phones jump on the telephone and call, 
No worries. And listeners, we'll put that in our show notes for sure. Um, we'll also put in um, something else in the show notes. We'll put in the, what did you say earlier? Uh, social model of disability. Yeah. So people can reference that. Great. Yeah? That would be that would be great. So um, look, thank you so much for joining us. We hope that the listeners get a massive amount out of this episode, the same as what I have. And I'm assuming, Ali, you have as well. Yeah, that was great. Yeah. Um, and yeah. listeners, uh, don't forget, as we say goodbye to, to Natalie, uh, hang around as Ali and I discuss and break down some of the key takeaway points that we really enjoyed uh, from this episode. And until um, next episode, Natalie, thanks again. Thanks for having me. Thanks very much. Okay, that's it for the discussion with Natalie Wade. We thank you very much for coming on and joining us on our podcast. Um, I think she's going to get lots of queries come through to Equity Lawyers. What do you reckon, Ellie? That was a great Yeah, yeah. Um, well, just to, to correct you there, Brad, it's Equality Lawyers. Oh, Equality, yes, sorry. <laughs> equality. Uh, yes, I've yeah, uh, she, been... She corrected us a couple of times, so I remember that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, um, yeah, I thought... Uh, to be honest, I really love that interview on multiple levels, as I was just telling you before, on a personal level, I sort of learned a fair bit. Um, I guess the concept of the disability community and being immersed in it and being proud of being disabled and so on. I, I, I thought that was, um, yeah, really good stuff that I personally hadn't thought about, um, I guess, as being an able-bodied person. So that was really interesting. Just her story in general of who she is and what she's achieved and so on is phenomenal. Um, but yeah, also I think that um, if you've got issues or need advocacy or need help, clearly she knows what she's doing um, and her team does. So reach out and um, yeah, talk to equality lawyers because that this is what they do. You know, they're, they're talking to people like you guys, our customers every day, helping them, um, you know, get through all of their issues, whether it's with NDIS or other um, community-related issues that, you know, people are dealing with. Um, so, so I thought it was, yeah, really, really good. And she's really inspiring. And to be honest, I, um, when she was speaking, I thought she was a lot older than what she was by the, by the I guess, the sophistication of her communication. And then when she sort of was mentioning how she's in her 30s, yeah. I then felt like the biggest idiot thinking, well, here I am um, in my 40s and she's achieved way more than I have in her 30s, you know? Yeah. So I was like, okay, you know, wow. She's yeah. a pretty bloody high achieving woman. That's awesome. Absolutely. I 100% agree. She is a very high achiever um, and she's doing great things. Uh, one of the big points that I found really interesting in the conversation was that she she wasn't really involved in disability groups or advocacy through her childhood she was chucked into mainstream schooling and and um you know like she said probably her parents did a whole lot of advocating for her um but it wasn't until she went to law school and 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 she grew up so to speak um that it all became really important to her and and now look at her she's she's standing up for so many people with disabilities um yeah. In the, in, in the disability sector. Amazing. Yeah. I, the other thing that I really want to point out was her three pro tips. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, that I thought, as we discussed, should be a real big highlight of what we talk about, um, really. And, and I actually hugely recommend 
maybe we might even find out where it is on the um, on the minute counter and highlight it um, because I think that you should go back and listen to what she's got to say about that. We have had many great golden tips here um, in these interviews with NDIS um, and a lot of them have paid off. I mean, you were talking about that impact statement that you started putting yeah. in just based on stuff that we've learned here and it's starting to really help with your success rate. So um, yeah, uh, I think just go back and listen to that part in detail, but we're going to break it down even more and kind of give our two cents on that. But that was gold, absolute gold. Yeah, I was thinking about those impact statements all the way through that interview. You're, you're absolutely right. And that is standing up for yourself and having to explain yourself again, which is a big part of the initial parts of the interview about that people with disabilities, you know, struggle to explain themselves over and over and over again. Um, and, and, you know, having to advocate for themselves and explain what, what their disability is to try and get funding um you know that's that's what natalie's there for is yeah. to help advocate for that to get the funding that you need in the first place but those impact statements make a massive difference to the outcome of getting funding because it's the person's own words explaining why they need it and how the impact of the disability impacts on their life and if they don't have this modification what impact that will have um yeah. So yeah, yeah. I thought impact really, statements. Yeah, yeah, and and I thought that like what I thought was really interesting and I guess kind of sobering in a little bit of a way was um, before we sort of get right into these points was was Natalie's own story. Um, I guess when I read between the lines, um, I kind of got the impression that she understands that this is a pretty hard thing for someone to go through in terms of getting the from from both the mental and physical effort required, particularly it sounded like more the the the, the mental effort required and the and so on, and so it's kind of like on the back burner until she's got the time and the energy. And and I guess that someone who is a high achieving, sophisticated lawyer who also struggles with getting things through NDIS, um, you know, I guess that gives us a little bit of comfort um, that it's, it's not, everybody's going through the same thing. Uh, and also, it's 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 also kind of like both comforting and distressing because it just means that it's a it's a tough process to go through, and you just have to go through it. You know, you just have to uh, um, get through that process. You know, and and maybe you do need to approach it like Natalie with a little bit of um, you know pragmatism, a bit more uh, you know thoughts around okay, I need a bit more energy, got to set some time in my life aside for this, and I'm going to do it. So that's kind of a little bit of a message I got between the lines. Um, with, with her reasoning, there was obviously other reasons, but I've got that kind of overall message that, yeah, look, it is, it is hard work, you know, even for someone yeah. who's a high level lawyer, who's fighting on this stuff. A lot of people might look at her and go, oh, it's going to be easy for you. You've got the words, you're a lawyer, blah, blah, blah. But clearly, you know, going through the same kind of things. Yeah. Oh, I, I agree with all of that. And um, yeah, well, let's not beat around let's repeat those three pro tips that she she had um tip number one um i'm going to be biased towards this one i totally agree to this one tip number one was to get yourself a good ot um there 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 definitely is ot and good ot um so like she said she she practices law in the disability sector and that's all she does day in day out and when it comes to driving modifications um get a OT that's experienced in driving modifications or driving needs for people with, you know, learning difficulties or autism or, or things like that. You need to have somebody that has experience 
And if they don't have experience because you're in a rural location and there's just not the choice out there, ask if they've got a mentor or get a second opinion or write an email to somebody that uh, to see if you do some Googling um, to, to see if you're on the right track and you see if your OT is on the right track. Um, well, you can also, um, to be honest, reach out to us if you want some tips. We'll, we'll help you put you in the right direction of people. Um, yeah. You know, roughly, anyway. Um, but yeah, look, I, I hugely agree with that. I, I think, um, I guess, in terms of good OT, more about experience in the field uh, that you're working in. Um, like, and, and the one thing I thought that was a really good point um, was an OT that's connected with the suppliers within the industry. Yep. So I think that's important, not from a point of view, like I think it's important if the person, if the OT has gone to that effort to make those connections with the industry, it kind of demonstrates that they are genuinely interested in this stuff um, and they have a, they, so you're going to have a much better likelihood of getting the right outcome for yourself if someone has a genuine interest. Um, you know, if, if like we've mentioned before, there is definitely organizations and so on that are focused on, um, you know, X number of approvals per month or whatever, whatever metrics they have. Um, and we want to try and have something to filter out things like that. And the way to do that, I think, is to really understand, is the person listening to what you've got to say? Is, it, is, is there tension? Are you getting along? You know, like we've said multiple times, nothing wrong with you questioning things, nothing wrong with you asking things. Um, you know, questioning what the OT is doing, asking them if they're kind of brushing that off and saying you don't know better and, and they know better than you might be a bit of a flag. Um, you know, it might be a bit of a kind of a question mark that you might need a second opinion, not to say it's bad, but yeah, just, just um, that connection with the, the industry, I think is very important. Um, just shows your knowledge. The new technology too. Yeah. Uh, yeah she yeah. mentioned that she said that, you know, the, the OTs that are aware of the new technology coming through might be able to have a new solution for you. So that was tip number one, get yourself a, a good OT. Yeah. All right. Number two, number two was go to your planning meeting well prepared. Um, she said there, find out what you need to know for your planning meeting and get it all there ready to go before you rock up to your planning meeting. And, and, and that might sound like it's fairly straightforward, but quite often there's, there's, a, there's a huge delay with, oh no, we can't approve that because we haven't got an up-to-date quote or can't approve that because uh, you haven't got the right written report. Um, as an example, your OT hasn't done a report, a quote's not good enough. So make sure you know um, what you need for, if you're wanting a piece of equipment, do some research before you rock up at your planning meeting because it may be that you need to have another review somewhere down the track once all the evidence is then presented or you may need to wait until your your next planning meeting which may be 12 months away so it delays everything yeah it, with that also i um one thing i want to reflect on is when we've looked at a lot of the like a lot of the people that we've interviewed um, the people that have um, had the most success uh, from NDIS and with the least amount of, I guess, hurdles that they're jumping through seem to be the people that have taken that extra little bit of time and effort to understand what exactly NDIS wants. Um, often, often what happens in these government type of situations 
Um, and, and not to get kind of political, but I had a discussion with someone about COVID vaccine in a similar kind of light, as in they were giving me a lot of facts about the COVID vaccine. And I asked them where they got the facts from, and it was just hearsay through people here and there and so on and so forth. And 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 I guess the point is, is I see a lot of that behaviour with NBIS a lot. So people will blindly fill in forms and, you know, someone said something to someone else and someone said something to someone else and then they'll submit it all and it gets rejected. And then they go on this big tirade about how the government hates them and no one is, is, is in support of them. But it's just they didn't do all the paperwork and didn't follow the guidelines and they didn't actually do that research and it was a bit of person down the street or OT up the road or this person said do this and that person said do that always go and look at the government guidelines, go and look at what they want, uh, understand what they want, because there, there are many people that we've interviewed that have had no problems because they've gone and read it all and, and they've got the support around them. They've got the family, they've got the people, impact statements, all of that kind of stuff. They've thought about all that stuff and, and they've rocked up to that planning meeting, as, as uh, Natalie said, well-prepared, you know, and, and to me, that's well-prepared, understanding everything, not just having a flag going, hey, I'm disabled, so give me money doesn't work that way. You've really got to, like, as I mentioned before, this high-end sophisticated lawyer, it, it takes her time to put in the funding approval for, um, for a modification, you know? So it's, it's nothing, it's not a joke. It's a serious thing, you know? So we need to take it seriously. And I, and I really love that, that she kind of pointed that out. Yeah, and you mentioned there off-the-cuff advice. And that kind of leads into tip number three. Um, if um, you're in your planning and what you've requested, uh, they need to ask for more information or they just outright say no, make sure that you get it in writing and ask for another review somewhere down the track and get that evidence for your review later on down the track. She said, don't take off the cuff advice, just that's been verbally said. Make sure that you get it in writing so you understand why. Um, and and then she said, if you're having troubles, follow up with an advocacy group, uh, which may be someone like someone like her and, and her law firm. Um, I thought that was that was really insightful, that final tip, um, that it doesn't have to stop with no, and it doesn't have to stop with um, asking for more evidence. Yeah, yeah, that, that thing in writing is huge um so many people forget about it as i said we get so many stories anecdotes every day about ndis and this person said that and i should have done this and they should have said this and most of it actually is hearsay and off-the-cuff comments and remarks and i think also and again it's not like a negative thing it's just that we need to be aware of it within the disability community because a lot of the people have I guess, struggled um, a lot of their lives and this stuff is new. And before, before NDIS, it was, life was much worse or a lot tougher. Um, people can be kind of a bit more vulnerable in this community, a little bit more, um, I guess, lose confidence pretty quickly and easy. You know, if one person says no, um, they might just lose that confidence pretty easily. Um, so like, like we've said, again, another common theme and the people that we've interviewed that have been successful, those people that don't say no, that don't give up, you know, that don't have someone that says, hey, you can't do this, or I don't think this should be in your plan, or blah, blah, blah. They just don't cop mm -hmm. it, and they just fight back. And and that's um, part of the process, you know, it's part of the game, you know. And, um, It'd be great if it wasn't part of the process, and that things were well explained right from the start, but at this current stage of where things are up to, 
we've got to play tough and yeah. uh, we've got to be tough and we've got to we've got to work through these hurdles because ultimately it still is in its infancy you know we think about medicare and medicare is fairly robust and works really well i wasn't around when it first started but i'm sure there was lots of questions and lots of issues with medicare right at the start when it was when it was being rolled out with how to bulk bill how to not bulk bill how to get a claim how to not get a claim which things were going to be covered which things weren't going to be covered I'm, I'm sure there were all these teething processes that my parents had to go through when Medicare first started. Um, and if we wind back the clock to that point, I'm, I'm sure that it's fairly similar, but it will get ironed out. The more, the more troubles that we go through and fix along the way, the better off it will be for the next generation coming through. Yeah, and times change and things change and things progress. I mean, I, um, I often reflect on um i mean it was about two or three years ago now we had a visitor over from um, sweden a head ot over and she um i guess sweden had a has a very similar system like ndis right mm -hmm. it's been going for more than 40 years in sweden and when she was over in 2018 2019 just like ndis did this year there was literally a funding freeze and a massive rev review on the entire system in um, in Sweden, 40 years down the track, 20 years down, you know, it's, it's happening all the time. You know, this is it's mm -hmm. part of the process. And, and they literally had, no one was getting any jobs done. No one was getting conversions done. No one was getting work done. People were waiting for delays, et cetera, et cetera. So it's just normal. You know, it's part of the, it, as you said, it would be ideal if it's not, um, but we just got to play that game, you know, and, and understand what is it they want. Um, and, and like you said, always get everything in writing, and really fight for what you want, you know? Yeah, and let's advocate for more people with disabilities to be in higher positions within these within these governments and, and uh, policy making decision areas, which is uh, another key point that she pointed out and, and something yeah. that I'm fully behind as well. Yeah, and I think I, personally, I guess on a personal note, I think with NDIS, what I've seen particularly over the last six or seven years is the disability community become much more of a community in its own, get a lot more of its own voice. And um, yeah, like I, I really think that, again, what I heard from what Natalie was saying in a roundabout way was a bit of a call to action on the community. Yeah. Um, it's, not just, it's not just we want the governments to give you positions, raise your voice and, 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 and advocate and, and debate and, and, you know, and say what you want um, because otherwise no one hears about it, you know, so, um, so that's basically it. Yeah. All right. Let's, let's re-highlight those three tips. The tip number one was get yourself a good OT. Tip number two was go to your planning meeting, very well prepared. And number three, get it in writing, get your yeses or nos, but also what, more evidence they want get it in writing so you know what questions you need to get answered for you for your review and book in a review yeah wonderful so. i really enjoyed that one and if you if you're listening to this podcast and you think that you know somebody that will really help out the disability community and maybe um they've got a driving story as well to go with that make sure that you get in contact with us at the drive able podcast you can find us on facebook Make sure that you go and have a look on there. Send us an email or a message through the Facebook or Instagram channel. And we will make sure that we reach out to that person and see if we can get them on 
we really appreciate your feedback. So if you've got feedback, if you've got questions, if you've got queries, if you've got a question that we you wish that we had of asked Natalie or any of our other guests, make sure you put a comment down below in the show notes. Yeah, it's great. Thanks very much. And yeah. I guess um, one thing that was mentioned a little bit a roundabout way, which is related to tip number one, is if you've got a good OT, um, they're going to relate, they're going to basically organize lots of trials for you, you know, and that is what's important and a big message of what we try and get out there. If you've got any queries of what you can do, what will work for you, get in contact with your local OT, mobility dealer, and set yourself up with a trial. Trials really do put you in the driver's seat. So, uh, so that's it, Brad. See you next yeah. time. See you next time, mate. That was a great one. See ya. See ya, mate. Thanks for listening to the Drive Able podcast with Brad Williams and Ali Akbarian. If you like what you've heard, make sure you like, rate, and subscribe. It really does make a massive difference. If you or anyone you know would like to share a story about driving with a disability, or you would like to get in contact, find the show notes, or find the resources mentioned in this episode, you can find us on Facebook. Just search at Drive Able Podcast for more information.